Welcome, everybody, to the 30th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas and discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is bodies. And as guest, we have Holly Lewis. Alan, would you like to introduce Holly? Certainly, I would. Holly uh, is a philosopher based at Texas State University. She writes on a range of issues relating to solidarity, uh, oppression, exploitation. She is the author of The Politics of Everybody, published by Zed Books, which explores a topic that she herself is one of the few and major authors in, which is queer Marxism. Uh, she has a very diverse background. Parts of her backstory are people like Eli Zareski, Jean Baudrillard, um, as well as the great Baltimore filmmaker John Waters. I almost forgot his name. So, hello, Holly. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for welcoming me on. Holly, the term that we want to explore with you today is bodies. What would be a good way, do you think, to start thinking about bodies? Well, I think that bodies is a really interesting term to talk about right now. Um, and thinking about bodies for me immediately conjures the, of course, the issue of the coronavirus and, and how it spreads. And it's been making me think about the relationships between bodies on a on a relational uh, interpersonal scale and on a global scale but also being um, situated in the United States and being in the United States we've had this uh, sort of nationwide public mass uprising in the middle of this pandemic against racist police murder so I think that it's a really interesting and complicated time to talk about bodies there's a sense of I think that you know, I don't know, if you, if you talk to me about bodies 10 years ago, mostly people would be talking about sexuality and gender and personal expression, uh, laboring bodies, bodies in the market and so on. But now there's this real sense of, of uh, I don't know, gloom, <laughs> maybe, around the concept of, of bodies. You know, I mean, for context, a, a student at my university was shot in the back of the head at a protest and brain damaged from it. And then, you know, beside him, a 16-year-old boy was just kind of standing on his way home from work from a sandwich shop, was just standing there with, like, his hands in his pocket, and he was shot in the face with a metal bean bag and it injured his prefrontal cortex. So, you know, in the United States, bodies are really caught in a whirlwind. Um, and, and I think that we've long been caught in a whirlwind, and that whirlwind is really whirling faster. And so it's a really super strange feeling to be caught in a whirlwind, but also not really able to leave your house at the same time. So I think that that's a really interesting phenomenon to be caught in the world. I mean, in, in usually in virtual ways, although, you know, many of us are going out there in, in the physical sense for, for protest and doing the best that we can to social distance, but to also have this kind of whirlwind going on, uh, in the interior of our of our homes and our private spaces, our, our houses. In, in a previous episode with uh, Will Large, we talked about the experience of the uncanny, about how people walk around uh, doing their shopping and try to maintain social distancing with this very heightened awareness of risk just to be close to people. So it seems the issue of body taboo, which of course has always been an issue, really becomes intensified during these moments. So how might we think about body taboos traditionally um, and then perhaps how they become intensified now? 
you know, I really, it's so difficult for me to talk outside of a U.S. context. I think that, you know, I mean, you talk about American exceptionalism. We have this kind of brutal exceptionalism going on right now where we have this massive COVID rate and this very strange reaction to it. And as far as body taboos go, um, one of the things that I assumed, and I don't know how it is elsewhere, but one of the things that I assumed is that we would largely be physically moving further away from one another, which is which is absolutely the case here as well. And there is a real fear of physically interacting with others. Um, but at the same time, we're having all of this violence happening uh, in, in the U.S. where, you know, people are spitting on one another and really kind of endangering one another as, as expressions of their personal freedoms. So, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, the uncanny, you have the situation of going out in, in a world that's very unhomelike, you know, or unheimlich, you know, um, as Freud talks about. So you're in your world, but you're not in the, in the world the way that it normally is. And people are behaving in very contradictory ways. On one hand, you have like real uh, strong physical body tattoos between people. And then on the other hand, you know, you have these, these really strong body ta uh, taboos. And then you have this conspiracy theory euphoria of people running around demanding that you, you, you physically experience their bodies um, and, you know, attacking people, spitting on people. So, I mean, we have that kind of crazy phenomenon happening as well. In a similar way, that I, I, I'm sure it's hard for you to speak about this outside your context. I'm from Finland, in, uh, based in Helsinki, and it's very hard for us to fathom from here what exactly is going on in the United States. We get the news, uh, we got YouTube channels that we may want to watch, and it really looks like apocalyptic from this perspective. Because in Finland, we, we've been lucky enough so that the virus is sort of stable. There is nothing much happening right now. Of course, there's always the threat of the second wave and all that. But bodies here, in opposition to how you mentioned whirlwinds, bodies are very calm here. And it's very, if you walk the streets, there is no direct way to sense that something weird is going on, even though, of course, there is. And like Alan mentioned, there is the risk. How do you feel people from outside the U.S. should look at the U.S. right now in this general sense? Because it's very puzzling for us. Yeah, I think that this is, unfortunately, you know, this is where COVID dovetails with the situation of, of, of police brutality with the George Floyd uh, protests. You know, we have the largest military in the world. We have children in cages on our border and nobody's even talking about that anymore, right? I mean, we have, you know, children that are literally in cages um, and th that are now also exposed to the virus uh, as people in, in jails are. And you know we have we have a history of of slavery of settler colonialism. Uh, so w one of the things that I've been thinking about is how you can't really talk about being an an American or you can't really talk about the United States and talk about bodies without talking about body counts. There's a difference between bodies and body counts, right? Like so when we talk about bodies, we talk about embodiment, which is kind of like the the, the conscious instantiation of human existence within this physical form. And 
it's very human. It's very capable of connecting with other people um, and being in the world with other people, to use sort of phenomenological terms there. But when you talk about body counts, it's exactly the, the opposite, right? It's the, the total kind of state abstraction, total capital ab- abstraction. Uh, so I think that it has a lot to do with our, with our, with our history. Um, one of the, the biggest curiosities is the amount of conspiracy uh, theory thinking, conspiratorial thinking. So we have 14% of the population refuses to use masks or they won't use masks at all. Um, and I think that this is because in part, because of not understanding the violence of capitalism and not knowing who to blame. So in other words, these are folks who feel more precarious than they ever have, but at the same time, they're not necessarily working class people, right? Like they're middle, upper middle class people who are afraid of losing their stature in, in a lot of cases. And, um, they don't understand why the world is the way that it is, but they understand that there's a problem. And so what gets named as that problem is, is just insane things, right? So the problem becomes uh, black people or people of color. The problem becomes Muslims. The problem becomes, you know, trans people or queer people. Um, but capitalism isn't, isn't and, and, and can't be the problem and it, and it isn't really understood or the, the history of what the United States has done to maintain its place in global capitalism. That isn't really, you know, thought of. And, and with, our, with our health industry, right? So we have a situation where, you know, you have testing. So when they call out for testing, getting tested for COVID, you need an address to get tested for COVID. So already you're saying, okay, well, you know, homeless people and undocumented people that don't want to come forward with their documents. Well, I mean, you know. You can die and, and then the rest of us somehow won't, right? Because we're not contiguous with you. We're not capable of interacting with you and catching what your body has. And you're, you're told that in order to get tested even, you need to have a home, you need to have an address, you need to have documents, and you need to have money, right? Nobody goes into it knowing what it's going to cost. <laughs> so there's this tremendous sense of, fear of cost when going in for healthcare. I would imagine that in other places, when you want to get tested for the coronavirus, you just go in and get tested for the coronavirus. Whereas here, you know, it costs money to get tested. It costs money for for an ambulance. And most people feel that. Um, You have to be incredibly rich in the United States to to not have that be an issue. So there is this sense of rage that, that people have. And if you don't understand capitalism, and in fact, if you're a partisan of capitalism and you think that it's a good thing, then you have to put the blame for that elsewhere. You have to figure out what it is that, that's causing um, you to not be able to access health care. And this has, you know, so it's, we have these crazy conspiracy theories where we have this theory that it's Obama doing everything, that the virus was created in a lab that um, it's a, a scam to make people wear uh, a hijab. One meme that I saw that was fantastic, and it, and it, it couldn't have been better if it, was, if, you know, if it was posted ironically. It was a meme of, of people wearing masks, and then slowly a beard takes over, and then the young person becomes Karl Marx. And I just, you know, 
how wonderful would that be if being a mask turned you into uh, being a Marxist from my perspective? Anyway, so I think that, that, that there is a sense of chaos here. And if you don't understand that chaos being rooted in American history, then you have to find scapegoats, essentially. I mean, that's what's happening. So there's a mass conspiracy theory going on. For that reason, we can't get everybody wearing masks. And if you can't get everybody wearing masks, you can't get everything under control. So there's just so many different factors that's happening here. So it is it is absolutely complete chaos. Like I live in a state where we have often have the highest rate of COVID in the country. And we are open for business. We are our restaurants are open, our bars are open, our beaches are open, our right. So everything is still open. And there's this idea that personal responsibility is going to save the day at the exact same time when people don't believe in masks. So there's all of these contradictions that are happening. And I think that the, the state doesn't know how to manage these contradictions at all anymore. Um, and it, it doesn't even know how to have a, a semblance of control. Holly, I'd like to ask you a question um, about Marxist theory, and in particular the relationship between the labourer the commodity and the consumer and how commodity fetishism causes the producer, the laborer to kind of disappear uh, as though commodities somehow make themselves. Uh, so it seems that we have this very kind of disembodied relationship, um, this very abstract relationship between people um, within capitalism. Uh, but in a way that seems to collapse a little bit during coronavirus, does it not? That instead we become much more conscious of an intimate connection with the bodies of workers around us. Do you think that's a useful way to think about some sort of change in how we perceive the world right now? I think that there has been, among sections of the left, uh, there's definitely been more attention to workers' bodies, the bodies of, uh, of nurses, the bodies of doctors who we normally honestly wouldn't think of in terms of labor. <laughs> and then for us, grocery workers are on the front lines and now teachers are on the front lines. But in the United States, there's, there's almost a split that you can see left and right. And the left, uh, even people who are kind of liberals, maybe drifting towards the left are people that care about workers' bodies that are concerned about people who are being, in many cases, forced to go to work. Um, like I said, restaurants are open here, so waitstaff is another example. Whereas on the right, you, you have an absolute disconnect from the concept that workers in any way matter, which, you know, we would, we would expect. But, you know, you have people that demand that people cut their hair, demand that people provide these services for them. And I think that, you know, in this living the United States kind of feels like a sort of a fluid death web right now. And I think that that does originate in the logic of capitalism and the logic that's emerged from capitalism over the centuries. And when Marx says all the solid melts into the air, what does that mean for bodies? You know, so to answer your question, Alan, um, you know, capitalism has reorganized production through the past 400 years. And it's not your mom or your neighbor baking your bread because they care about you. It's sort of these invisible hands making your bread. 
and every element of your bread experience, not because anybody loves you or cares about you or who's part of your community or they're part of your community, but because of the dull compulsions of the market. So there's almost like a natural feeling of it, as if capitalism and the way that jobs function and the way that labor functions and the way that commodities are produced, as if it's somehow natural. And labor just becomes kind of like a force of nature. Labor becomes the you know, insects or grass or something, whatever, a, a, a manifestation of how things happen, uh, permanent and it can't be changed. And so we can't really talk about this, this fluidity that we're all like experiencing without talking about both goods and human laboring bodies. And, you know, we need to talk about production as well as circulation. And that's because production and circulation are dialectically related. And uh, productive, production also involves productive consumption, right? So when we're producing things, the production process also consumes things in that process. And so the reason why capitalism accelerates and why we're in this, this whirlwind where we can't actually slow down and stop and say, well, what will it take for the coronavirus to, you know, uh, to relent, right? So the U.S. is this in, in, incredibly... It is intensely shaped by the logic of capitalism, right? So we can't see what it means to slow down and stop something so that people won't die. Because, you know, capital is extracted in two ways, through making people work longer and through speeding up the productive capacity um, and through lowering wages and consumption standards of laborers. So, you know, this is why everything is liquid, and individual capitals require constant mobility in order to remain competitive. And for that reason, there's this absolute fear of stopping the economy, um, of stopping these relations of production. Because if we stop, then there's this sense that everything is going to collapse. So you just throw the bodies in that are something like a body count, a natural force. You just throw people at the problem. We're even facing this in our in our universities. You know, um, semester is going to start in you know a month, and for people who are staff, it's already starting. And we're all going back. And this is the message: you're going back. You're going back. You're going to be interacting with your uh, with your students face to face, and it's it's you know it's complete madness. Um, but. That's from this logic of capitalism, this logic of we have to continue production because if we stop producing, then everything is going to fall apart. But what's actually going to fall apart is profit's going to fall apart. I'm thinking, uh, so for example, I live in Leicester, which is the one part of the UK which remains in lockdown because there's a bad outbreak in the city. Um, and it's emerged that one of the reasons why that happens is because there's about 1,000 sweatshops in the city, uh, which is just the, the Wild West in terms of working conditions, um, and the workers there are completely vulnerable, and it seems that coronavirus is spreading there. Similarly, several European countries have found that meat factories uh, have been the sites of, of outbreaks of coronavirus. They spread very quickly. So the, the point that I'm getting at is there's awareness now that public health generally uh, is contingent upon the working conditions, that, that people are working in cramped factories, that it puts us all at risk now. I mean, that's quite an interesting 
way to perceive labor injustice, isn't it? That it now matters to our bodies uh, that someone else nearby is working in an unsafe labor condition. One of the, the kind of tragic American responses to this has been that, for example, in, in Texas, prison conditions are already completely cramped and spreads there, but pr there's a, a ton of prison labor that goes on as well. Um, where people are, are also working close together in order to produce profit. There's this sense of it's not even important if there's an outbreak at a meat processing plant, even more so if there's, not an, if there's an outbreak at a prison, that these numbers be included in the total counts. Because it didn't happen in general. It didn't happen to the community. It just happened to those people, <laughs> right? So there's this right-wing response of why are we adding the numbers of people at meatpacking plants or in prisons or in chicken plants? Uh, you know, and these packing plants are particularly locations where the virus spreads because you're working in cold. So it, it is um, it's a very stable place for the virus to, to develop. But the response to this on the right is these people don't even matter. So they don't even matter to the general community. They're not part of the Gemeinschaft, the, the community, the nation, right? Um, they're, they're on the outskirts of this. And so we're not even going to include them in the count. So there had to be this kind of fight to include these localized outbreaks. Now, mind you, the, the vast majority of the American people, I think, are, are horrified by, by all of that. But there is this right-wing response that, that just turns those folks not only into body counts, but into body counts that don't count, if that, that makes any sense there. But I think that for the rest of us, yes, there's been this heavy emphasis on looking at how things pass through laboring, laboring bodies. Um, farm workers as well. Um, construction sites have been enormous locations for outbreaks here because you have to work very close together. Um, so, yeah, there is this acknowledgement not rethinking, but remembering about the relationship between bodies and labor on the left and how our bodies are connected, whether we think they're connected or not. We're connected kind of invisibly, right? So the conditions of a, a meat packing plant in Leicester may have an effect on what's happening in the United States for, for, for workers in the United States. I mean, at the beginning, it was spread internationally. Uh, of course, talking about bodies implies a universal human experience, but there's also a major racial aspect in terms of who gets coronavirus uh, and who dies from it, that there's a very disproportionate uh, experience of it amongst uh, the, the BAME community as well. So uh, how, how should we think then in terms of I mean, it seems dumb to say the racism of coronavirus, and yet that's in reality how it plays out. I think that one of the ways that we need to look at this that's very important is to actually not think about it in terms of there being different bodies between different races, right? Um, and I think that sometimes the, the discourse gets put that way, where it's there's something about, you know, black people, or as it's often put, black bodies, which is a phrase that really... Uh, uh, disturbs me when I hear it, but you know that that black people or that that Latinx people, you know, or Native American people might have different types of bodies from white people, and that there might be something in their bodies that's causing this um, 
is, is a terrifying, is a terrifying way to look at this. And what we found is that it's the overarching, it's the overarching racism. It's the racism that capitalism, that, that, that comes out of, uh, out of capitalism, that capitalism needs, um, that racism is what's creating these poor health outcomes, right? Um, you have doctors that don't listen to black people and when they talk about their bodies and what they're feeling because of a lack of, of empathy, particularly black women. You have poverty, you have cramped living conditions, you have people working in physical jobs, right? So this is why people of color are quite spreading. And sometimes you'll hear, I mean, I think that more than ever, it's very, what is on the right? Like kind of right-wing arguments are so superficially even, even clear that when you start talking about people as having different kinds of bodies, we're getting into really dangerous territory. It's capitalism that is causing the bodies to be in different situations, not some kind of, you know, biological difference in, you know, among races that pre-exist capitalist racism. I'm very much a proponent of the idea that racism is what causes races, that it's a, that it's a, that it's a process that happens. Uh, Holly, you mentioned uh, one of my favorite terms, which is uh, how everything is accelerating. So even if this might be a little bit off topic, I'd really like to ask you a question of accelerationism in this current moment. So, of course, one of the biggest accelerationist, uh, if you take it as a you know, general form, argument is that we can't break out of capitalism, we have to break through capitalism by accelerating its, in, its paradoxes and inconsistencies. So part of this argument, of course, is that capitalism used to function well by externalizing all its negative outputs, which would have been, of course, pollution, even patriarchy and racism, as somehow that they could still exist in the system and they never kind of, there was, the tipping point was not reached. So can we say that this could be seen as an accelerationist moment when obviously all of these kinds of tipping points are being reached now in some sense? I would argue against accelerationism for a few reasons. Um, one is that it's also a term of the of the right, um, and the right is also trying to accelerate. I don't believe that suffering and struggle and pain is going to wake up the working class, right, <laughs> so that changes are made. I think that that. The, the working class is already awake um, and is is heavily disorganized. The other thing about accelerationism is that there's this kind of naturalism and teleology that seems to be connected to it, where there's this idea that caps, capitalism collapses under its own accord. And I, I do think that it collapses when when we when we organize something different. And I do think that if we don't do that, then then a right wing that is different than than neoliberalism um, that uses the resentment of the fluidity of capitalism in order to create a different kind of um, hyper nationalized uh, capitalism that that can also emerge. So even having a lot of like kind of left right clashes, um, but you know there's intense suffering that can exist under under capitalism and intense contradictions. We feel those contradictions. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that that 
to me, I think that, that organizing um, and organizing fight backs, which is incredibly difficult to do in the middle of a pandemic, right? Organizing fight backs is the, is the solution. Um, and, and fight backs that have a capacity to, to take over, to create, you know, create change. We're, we're seeing things that we've never seen before, like um, 53% of the American public uh, being okay with the police station being burned down. Like that's a, that's a very, very strange phenomenon. I, I wouldn't say that that, it, but nothing came of that, right? In the long run, because there was nothing on the ground to further organize, what we have is a symbol, a symbol of protest. But there isn't any kind of transformation that happens out of that because we're demobilized, right? We've had a very difficult time mobilizing in the U.S. So that is just my very U.S.-centric position on that, um, on acceleration. We could actually stick with the U.S. example in this sense, too. So, you, uh, of course, we're seeing this very strongly. There is uh, symbols for people to rally around. Bodies are, in effect, getting highly excited to demonstrate for social justice, or I guess on the right-wing side, to just demonstrate for whatever concept of freedom they have and then just spread the virus more, uh, just to, I guess, own the libs or something like that. But the question then really is, uh, that you kind of were getting at, is that, is this now an event that will actually, if you will, eventify? Will it become an event in the full sense of the term? Or is the re-territorializing force of techno-capitalism still way too strong for anything to come out of this? I understand this is a somewhat speculative, but what do you think? I, I think that, that it's more, it's not that it's too strong, although I am very uh, concerned about data capitalism um, and its ability to undermine us. Um, I think that's another question altogether. But I think that we are so weak and we've always been in a particularly weak place in the United States in terms of organizing because we're the center of empire, you know, um, and it's not just purely some kind of an intellectual or ideological problem here. It's that we have a very strong state that just as we have violence abroad and we put people down abroad, people are put down here in very violent ways. The problem isn't so much that, that there is no alternative or you know, capitalism makes it impossible. Capitalism is always going to try to make it impossible. But the problem is that we are incredibly disorganized. Uh, I mean, it, it also should be remembered that I don't, as I'm speaking, I don't live in New York City. I don't live in a major U.S. city. And I live in the South, which makes it even you know, um, more, more difficult. I also tend to be a pessimist, you know, the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. But I think that, that it, it really comes down to, uh, down to organizing. And we don't have a lot of the bodies of organization that exist elsewhere in the world. And sometimes that can be beneficial. Sometimes we don't get, you know, um, dragged down into, you know, defending parties that, well, I mean, I'm not even going to say that because we get dragged down into defending worse pro parties like like Democrats, for example. Um, we have kind of destroyed organs, working class organs, right? We have labor here is always 
flat on its back, as it said, um, you know. And we have these uprisings, but we don't have a lot of organs to keep up the pressure. And, I mean, we also don't have organs that become stale or ossified. But I don't think, as far as acceleration goes, I, I do not think that... I don't know how it gets any more accelerated than this. I don't want to know. I don't... I mean, my city is has organized... The city has ordered the refrigerated trucks for corpses. And there wasn't a fight back for that here. We're, while the city is organizing refrigerated trucks for corpses, faculty are being told to go back into the classroom in a month. And the fight back is really is scattershot. People want to do something, but nobody knows what to do. And I do think that the left has been very dependent on physical bodies being together. That is much more difficult to do now, particularly indoors. Uh, what about isolated bodies and the experience of lockdown? I think that it's a, it's a funny thing that's happening because while we're, we're experiencing this kind of intense isolation and for many people touch deprivation, the deprivation of, of, of kind of embodied social reactions, we also, um, many of us are online, so we have this kind of wild knowledge of everything that's going on, right? <laughs> this sense of, of being overwhelmed with everything that's going on and yet not able to move and completely stuck. The uprisings were a great example of this. You know, m most people that are somewhat older, and by somewhat older, I mean really people over the age of 40, who are, who are a little bit more in danger, had a very difficult time going out to these protests because, it, you know, they're, they're dangerous or people have uh, uh, health conditions that need to be considered. And so a lot of us were stuck inside during a mass uprising for the first time, and that was incredibly frustrating to be trapped in your house while all this is going on in the streets. And so, but I do think that a reinvigorated understanding of what can what one can do from the confines of of one's situation, one's home, are being thought through. Whereas in the past, it would be like you know, get off the internet, get out into the street, get, you know, get organized with groups, whatever. Now there's an openness that there wasn't in the past towards looking at how we how we organize in isolation and the contributions that people can make that may not necessarily be in a community body presentation, um, but one that is still deeply connected to solidarity and activities that are rooted in solidarity. Have you seen any interesting queer expressions of pandemic embodiment? One of the things that's been very difficult for, for, for queer people within this, um, queer people particularly who are not in monogamous relationships, right? I mean, they can't really see their partners <laughs> um, because of this idea to everything being rooted into the household. People are stuck in their households. So there's this forced reversion to family values and <laughs> this kind of the uh, sexual not so much individualism, but individualism in the way of thinking through the family unit as one one being. And, you know, in cities, a lot of people don't live with anybody that they're sexually engaged with at all. Um, they live with, with, with roommates that they barely know. And so 
I think that there's been a lot of pain, psychological pain in queer communities, you know, for queer people online. And uh, people have been cut off from connections that they need. Young queer people uh, are cut off from support systems that they need. I've heard stories about, you know, people who have, let's say, rainbow flags on their houses or what have you, or, or any kind of um, LGBT symbol on their household, that kids have gone in and put things in their mailbox asking them for help, saying, hey, can you get me this thing? And can it be delivered to your house? And then I'll kind of pick it up, right? Um, which is a very strange coronavirus way of interacting, but honestly, it's a new way of, of interacting. So people are, are kind of reconstituting their social networks. Your social network may have to be in your neighborhood if you're a young person. It isn't necessarily in your, your school uh, gay and lesbian club, right, a support club. It's now it has to be in your neighborhood. So I think that people are looking to build connections in, in, in really different ways. And I think that, that the reliance on family values and family sustenance in this time has been very difficult for a lot of queer people. What do you make of the Todd Recall videos? I love them. Uh, I, that's another thing that's really happened is that, like, certainly queer culture at the same time has been, um, I don't want to just say normalized, but has been something that has been inspiring to a lot of people, even non-queer folks. You talk through what the Todd Recall videos are about. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of... Uh, celebration of queerness in the sort of Zoom format, in the uh, the online format of being fabulous in one's home. So, you know, being fabulous while uh, cleaning your house. Uh, and I think that, that, that that's really interesting from a social reproduction angle because a lot of social reproduction has been, I don't want to say dismissed, but it has been the thing that we don't want to think about in queer celebration, right? You know, yeah, you have to clean up after yourself, you have to clean up after other people, but you know, who wants to think about that kind of that kind of, you know, unfortunate drudgery. But in this case it's being it's it's being that kind of social reproductive labor, the labor of reproducing ourselves and our our loved ones around us, particularly in this case who we're living with. It's being incorporated into sequins and 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 being fabulous and having your body moving and dancing and acceptance of different types of bodies as you know i mean our bodies are definitely changing as we're as we're home indoors not able to get out so much you know that's my my take on the on the the tajikal videos this kind of celebration of the moment that we're in in the bodies that we're in and seizing and and this has been the history of the the black queer community has been seizing every opportunity that one has in order to live well right with 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 whatever you can in order to celebrate oneself and remain strong and to celebrate others and to be joyful and to be and to be funny <laughs> in the harshest of circumstances. So I'm not surprised that people have looked towards um, queer art and entertainment for sustenance and joy in, in a moment like this. 
part of the reason why we have this vocabulary today to talk about bodies is the tremendous rise of affect-based theorizing, non-representational theorizing, assemblage theorizing, and others in pretty much all the fields of academia I can think of. Of course, uh, these fields focus on affective intensities as opposed to representational emotions. I'm thinking of you know anything that has to do really with immanence and becoming rather than this kind of idea that we take words as representational meanings, as wholes. Uh, also, I'm reminded of Sarah Ahmed's work, how she kind of combines these things uh, with a particular perspective to how memories stick on your skin. So what, what I'm thinking for all of this is that while it's so interesting and liberating, and did you say even nourishing, maybe to think about these things from different perspectives that we used to, the whole idea of the body becoming more present is academically at least, theoretically, very liberating in some sense. But what I'm now afraid of with this corona, with all this uncertainty, will the memories that now stick on our skin be rather of negative intensities? Will these skin memories be bad memories, not the ones that we were maybe hoping for? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, so really what you're saying, and I'm probably going to answer in, in non-theoretical language, because <laughs> I, I tend to do that, is are the intensities that we're feeling now, are they, are they traumatic intensities? And how are they being stored in our body as opposed to um, experiences that we have a bit more of a control, control over? Um, or, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, with any kind of phenomenological analysis, there's this sense of, of uh, contemplative distance that, that happens when one is transcribing and feeling at the same time. Trauma doesn't really allow that, you know. Um, trauma is when you're uh, stuck in the, in the body and and there's this disconnect that happens between the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the body um, on this neurological level where one actually can't create representations for these, these, these sensory, negative sensory experiences that one can't control. I do think that it's a danger. I think it's particularly um, horrific for people that are actually undergoing the, the, the suffering of the, of the coronavirus. Um, how does one articulate that? That's actually been a political problem for us. How does one articulate that that kind of feeling of suffering that could even serve as a warning to other people? No, you have to take this seriously. Please wear a mask. Uh, but you know, there's all kinds of other solidarities that need to exist in order for, for 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 that kind of expression to take place. But I do think that there is this this gap between between logic and affect and bodies that has new valences, new meanings, and new dangers in a moment like this. Um, and yeah, I mean, I actually hadn't, hadn't thought of that, but I, myself, you know, I've turned away from phenomenology for a number of years and turned towards, you know, I mean, Marxist theorizing, Marxist economics, and I've always tried to keep phenomenology in my work, but I found myself really gravitating back towards these questions and questions of, of affect and its relationship to solidarity, um, but also feelings, intensities, expressions, non-visual senses of, of phenomenological experience. This is something that I'm definitely going to be exploring more of. I think that one of the things that we're all feeling is completely 
you know, gobsmacked, right? Um, and unable to, to it's, it's more difficult than ever to get one's thoughts together, to put together a response. And, and that has a lot to do with the body and affect and, and, and being traumatized in moments like this. You know, it's really difficult to, to theorize when you're essentially, when your neighbors and those around you are a, a threat to you and other neighbors, right? Um, somebody was talking about the situation in the U.S. is very much like sort of a war of attrition. We're all very wary of one another. I, you know, a friend of mine was spit on by a person who was angry because, you know, she asked him to wear a mask. And so there's this constant fear. The other thing that's happening is cars driving through people at protests and how that's being normalized. You know, they talked about 60 cars in one month went through and hit people in protests, you know, and people were killed. So there is this tremendous sense of, of trauma. And I do think that, that, Marxists who, I mean, we don't generally do very well with the concept of, of the body because the body seems, you know, um, is connected with individual subjectivity, you know, uh, 19th century rationalist philosophy, oddly, right? You know, the body would be connected to that subjectivity and individualism, but we need to embrace some of these ways of thinking about collective experience that have, you know, that we haven't we haven't done so well with in the past. And it seems that there's a good chance that we have a long-term future to look forward to with a greater sense of risk and fragility. Uh, whether or not, say, a um, immunity can be achieved or the scientists develop the antidote, um, nonetheless, we're going to be aware now of the potential for the next uh, coronavirus or COVID virus to, to launch itself. So it seems it's going to be a very different future in terms of how we understand our own embodiment. I don't see this as a temporary situation. Um, I mean, in the U.S., not, not only is, are there, I mean, I have, I have hope for a vaccine, but I think you're absolutely right in that this is not going to be an isolated problem because of environmental destruction, the in, in, environmental ecological damage that capitalism and capitalist processes have caused, we're going to see more problems, um, more viruses, more uh, ill effects of health. And yeah, I mean, whether it's coronavirus or, or not, but I do think it's actually going to be coronavirus as well. In the U.S. it's going to be because it's still going to be a problem even if we had a vaccine because we have such a, a, a large anti-vax movement here that, you know, it's often the same people that won't wear masks that also won't get a vaccine. In fact, the conspiracy theory is that the whole thing is just to, it's a, it's a ruse to put a chip in people's bodies, the mark of the beast, um, and that Bill Gates is the person that invented this chip and all these kinds of crazy, you know, um, it's kind of like anti-capitalist, bad surrealism, I guess you could say, responses. They are, they are this kind of complete irrationality uh, irrational responses to to capitalism. So those folks are still going to be around and still going to be endangering people in the United States. And so far as the United States wants to be a part of the world, you know, or people let us be a part of the world, 
we're going to be a danger to others. <laughs> so who we are now is different than who we were last month, who we were the month before that. And I think that who we're going to become in six months is really difficult to predict. What, what it's going to mean to be indoors for this long um, in six months. You know, and it depends. It depends on whether those refrigerator trucks filled with corpses have any impact. And what's really strange is that, and I don't know how this relates to, as far as affect goes, there's there's definitely a death drive in the in the sense of numbing that we have here, where something bad happens and everybody is upset about it for a minute, but then it completely becomes the norm. And I think that that also comes from the history of participating in these atrocities, right? Eventually, well, you can't stop the the, the U.S. military machine, so you're just going to focus maybe on you're going to you're going to bracket that off, and you're going to think about things in, at, at at home. You're going to numb yourself out out to that. Well, you need to work on LGBT issues, but you're white and you don't really have the tools to deal with racism, so you're just going to numb yourself out to that. You know, I mean, with the situation with with the kids in the in the kitty jails, we don't know what to do. It, it, it's a it's a it's they're um, in in locations that are that are hard to get to uh, physically, in in many cases, and so we just forget about it. And and I think that we were all absolutely horrified when there were, were refrigerated trucks and mobile morgues in New York a few months ago, and now. It's not even news that Texas officials are organizing them. It's like, oh, yeah, well, our hospitals are full. And, you know, that means we need more trucks. And you see this in the fact that the universities are opening. Well, yeah, well, we got we have to go on. One last comment from me, Holly, um, is that from listening to you, I, I get a very strong impression from you that you're noting two uh, sicknesses at the moment. There's coronavirus itself, and then also you're you're presenting a sort of schizoanalysis of of a, a deeper malady in American culture, which is all to do with contradictions of capitalism that just seem to have blown up now. Is that a fair way to describe how you're seeing uh, the contemporary moment? It it is, and this is the other reason why I'm skeptical about acceleration, um, because. I think that if it accelerates any worse with an armed right-wing population here, and we do have an armed left-wing population as well, um, what it accelerates into is not necessarily a communist future. Right? Um, we would have to fight for that. And I guess that's the other thing, too, is that whatever it is, we're going to have to fight for it. Whatever future we're going to have, we're going to have to fight for it, and we're going to have to figure out new ways to fight because of the the confined, how, how we're, we're now um, confined in our activities. I mean, I, I don't know what it would take to make people aware, like, to have that kind of embodied understanding of the, the realities, to make people embodied again and not just understand things in terms of body counts, but in terms of embodiment. And all too often, it's only when, you know, uh, it's this individualistic sense of when something happens to someone you know or someone that you, someone that you care about, which just goes for the total lack of, of social connectivity in the U.S. Um, there's this group on, on, on Facebook that makes, you know, it's called, you know, We Live in a Society, at making fun of, you know, 
we live in a society that does X, Y, or Z, just we live in a society. And I remember seeing that in my, in my feed and thinking, do we, do we in the U S live in a society? I think that more than, more than ever, what we're talking about social breakdown, we talk about social breakdown a lot in the U S is that we, we only loosely live in it. We're a collection of individuals that are kind of thrown uh, together competing against one another. So there's this huge sense that it isn't so much of a social order as a, a, a disordered mass of people living in the same space uh, with conflicting interests. And I think that for that reason, we're going to have to very quickly figure out who our friends are, who our enemies are, and, and begin that process of organizing and building solidarities. Holly, if I may, one really quick question, and please don't Please don't think of me as a hateful character for making a little bit more of a fun question here in the end. But I really, this has to be asked. What's it like working with Baudrillard? Ah, with, 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 with Baudrillard? We had, we had some really interesting uh, conversations. One, that he was, he was very quiet. And uh, we had this conversation on a, on a hillside in, in Switzerland, on a mountainside in, in, in Switzerland one time. And somebody asked him if he was a nihilist. And he just laughed and said that he would have to have too much faith to be a nihilist. And I, I kind of thought that was um, a good presentation of him. I actually have some work of his that, um, that he distributed. And I don't think that it was ever, was ever published. At least it wasn't published in the form that I, that I, that I have it. I like Baudrillard, I do, which is, which is, um, you know, I mean, I, I tend to be a, a classical Marxist, but there is something about the impressionistic way that he describes things that in, you know, in his, in his, in his later, his later work turned towards, towards, uh, photography and, and, and making photographs. And when I was working with him, that's really what he was talking about more was photographs. His, Writing, I understand it as having a particular poetic quality to it. Um, and I think that taking his work literally is, is really sort of unfair. Well, for my part, I have to say thanks very much, Holly. It's been great listening to you. Yes, thank you, Holly. Thanks for inviting me on. And uh, I hope that the next time that we speak and, and meet up, I, I hope that it might be in person again at some point. 